Jess, Ford, I am so excited to be doing this with you guys. We've been talking about this for months now, and we are just about to kick off a six-part series where each of us present a cool story that's happening in the world of nature and conservation and the great outdoors, and then the three of us get to talk about it, which we do anyway when we're on calls together, so <laughs> this kind of doesn't feel like work. <laughs> It's, it's nice when what you do passionately for fun turns into something you can do uh, for education and as a podcast. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Well, so I think uh, as this is the first one that we are doing, it probably, uh, I mean, everybody uh, is probably bored of hearing of me who listens to the podcast, but I think the two of you need to just introduce yourselves briefly. Now, Jess, you've been on the podcast at least once, I think twice before, maybe three times, I'm not sure. <laughs> but just remind people your background, like what your day-to-day -day is as an intro to yourself. Uh, so I'm Jess Johnson. I'm the Government Affairs Director for the Wyoming Wildlife Federation, which is obviously centered in Wyoming and deals with Wyoming policy and politics around hunting. Uh, and then I'm also a co-founder of Artemis Sports Women, which is a women's hunting and angling coalition sort of geared toward the raising of the platform of women's voices and conservation leadership, as well as sort of hunting and, and industry level uh, uh, things. And you're also involved in 2% for Conservation? I am also, yes, a board member for 2% for Conservation. How could you forget? How could I forget? <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I have a, a great, uh, a great cadre of board members I get to work with to help keep that org going. So feeling very honored. Awesome. Well, it is fantastic to have you on here um, to do this series that actually you and I kind of dreamt up probably about six <laughs> months ago. And uh, Ford, it's brilliant to have you on. Give us uh, the quick uh, two minute rundown of, of who you are and what your kind of background is. Sure. My name is Ford Van Fossen. I am the Content and Conservation Manager at First Light Performance Hunting Apparel in uh, in Idaho. And I have a background before that sort of in wildlife management. I uh, majored in conservation biology, worked for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the University of Delaware um, on invasive plants and white-tailed deer and all kinds of good stuff, but ultimately ended up working for a hunting apparel uh, manufacturer, um, but uh, also getting to basically manage our outreach with nonprofits, um, our kind of direct volunteer projects on the ground, um, our fundraising efforts for nonprofit partners, all that good stuff for First Light. Great. And with that, we're going to kick straight into the show. Now there's there's some there's some crossover here. So I'm I'm going to start with Jess. Jess, you're going to present your story first because you're talking about bison, and this is incredibly <laughs> topical because it's been in all of my news feeds in the last two weeks. I am also going to be talking about bison, but on the other side of the planet. So tell us what is what is your kind of news roundup on bison in North America. So I picked this one actually specifically because I also saw yours and I thought it was a good uh, comprehensive sort of overview and at where bison and conservation has come and, and sort of the, the long and varied history of it. Basically, the story is, is that the National Park Service um, 
has opened up the ability to apply as a hunter to help call some of a bison herd that is in the Grand Canyon uh, National Park. And this comes on the coattails of some other, uh, I know in a previous podcast, I think I may have mentioned a mountain goat hunt that happened course, in Teton yeah, yeah. Park. So this is sort of similar in the sense of like, they have this bison herd. It is now moved almost exclusively into residing within the park. Um, they have around 600 bison. I think ideal management, they're looking at like 200-ish. Uh, it doesn't seem like they, a lot. Is Grand Canyon National Park must be massive. Yeah. yeah. So I think some of it is like where it is uh, okay for them to reside, where it's socially acceptable. You know, you have a lot of those social boundaries that are hitting, I mean, impacts to visitors, impacts from grazing and trampling on water, vegetation, soils, archaeological sites. Grand Canyon has a lot of those. And so they're trying to find this balance. And the, the picture, uh, the, the article that I chose um, I think is really interesting because, you know, from the hunting community, we heard about this and every hunter was like, wow, how cool would that be? I want to go hunt bison. Have you and, applied, like, Ford? Uh, uh, yes, I already yeah, did. You, <laughs> amazing. Have you applied? So did yes. I. Yes. Yeah, okay. I have and, not because I'm not in the country. Well, so they opened it and it got nearly 45,000 volunteer applications in less than 48 hours and they closed wow. it. They're only picking 12 out of that. So it's like that is just quite this the lottery. Lottery huge. But the thing is, is like, you know, we, we in America hunted bison pretty much to extinction, um, both in a way of like market hunting, but also in the mindset of that removing the bison also removed the indigenous folks yeah, on the landscape po- because of that. Political agenda there too, yeah. Huge political agenda. So uh, inextricable the bison and the the recovery of the bison is tied uh, with with indigenous peoples in uh, America. And so this major hunt came out and people were really excited about it. But there's always the antithesis of this is that, especially in the West, there's a lot of conflict with bison and agriculture. Uh, bison are known to carry brucellosis. A lot of ag producers, it's a, it's a disease that uh, causes early abortion in cattle. And if you have cattle that test positive for it, it's major. It's like your whole herd is lost. You're put on like a quarantine. It, it, it can literally put a rancher out of house and home forever. So like yeah. having that kind of thing is major. And, you know, the West is very much dominated by agriculture politics. Yeah. Um, so we have a very similar thing conflict. with... Um with badgers here and TB, tuberculosis. Yes. Oh, it, it's Similar. just this. And that's majorly controversial because badgers are a protected species here and a non, you know, and no one hunts them. It's like bison are protected in the US, but they are a huntable species under certain circumstances. And, you know, bison get hunted very regularly outside Yellowstone National Park, you know, in the greater Yellowstone area. Whereas badgers here, they've been, they've had these culling programs to try and see if reducing the badger numbers will reduce the instances of tuberculosis being transmitted to cattle. And it's so, so it's, it's scary, you know, you know, cause you have these ag agriculture producers whose livelihood uh, exists on it, but now you also have, and this is the amazing thing is, is a lot of these indigenous tribes, uh, especially the one in my backyard are working to reintroduce bison 
onto their reservations or working on yeah. bison programs. And they're trying to get their hands on bison uh, to transplant there. But because of all these agriculture restrictions and these testing and, and the public sentiment, which is really kind of anti-bison um, because of the livestock industry, uh, it's really, really hard. And they have to go through a lot of red tape. It's It seems like the system feels a little rigged against them um, in all of this. And, and it's been really hard for them to bring bison back in a way uh, that, that the agriculture politics is even remotely accepting of it. Um, and so all of this is happening. And then this call happens. And the story that I picked is it's called Thousand Signed Petition to Stop Grand Canyon Bison Hunt Lottery after 45,000 volunteers. It's a Newsweek thing, but it's talking about um, an organization. It's called the Sioux Chef. This is a, a gentleman who actually uh, cooks uh, food, local, locally foraged food in indigenous ways as a professional chef. Um, and he launched this petition. It has like 7,600 signatures that's saying that like, you know, the government killed millions of these animals as a means of weakening indigenous communities. And now, rather than giving these animals to the tribes that are trying desperately to reintroduce them onto their, like, their, these properties that they have prepped and ready to go, you're, you're letting, you know, essentially white hunters come in and hunt them um, without even thinking about the indigenous means for it or things like that. And, and it's very incendiary language, which is obviously why it makes uh, news headlines. But it also, I think, highlights this really charged and interesting thing of like, you know, conservation being successful, but still being limiting on, on being able to talk to indigenous uh, indigenous voices and to have indigenous voices at the table that are making these decisions. Um, and it's sort of a collision of two worlds trying to find balance in that. And I thought it was a really great, uh, both a, a celebration of a conservation win and that bison are coming back and they're at the point where we do hunt them and we hunt them often. Um, but also a acknowledgement of the fact that there's still some deep disparities in our politics on how we deal with like indigenous rights and, uh, sort of our storied history with that yeah it's it's fascinating i wonder and you might not have the answer to this but it's so it was 600 bison it's down to 200 you said carrying capacity uh they'd like i think so as as they were talking about on the national park they say uh let's see they would like to reduce the number of bison on the north rim of the Grand Canyon from around 600 bison to less than 200 um, using lethal removal with skilled volunteers. Um, and they say that the action is necessary due to rapid growth of the bison population and the transition from a herd using state and U.S. Forest Service lands historically to almost currently exclusively residing within the canyon. So because of other impacts from the outside, these, this, these bison are using like only within the park and it's creating a different uh, sort of use issue where it's like water, vegetation, soil, and I think especially agricultural sites or archaeological, sorry, archaeological sites. Um, and oh, yeah. trying to find that balance, which is, you know, when when humans develop everywhere else but the small bits of land that we leave for the wildlife, um, we also have to contend with how many of the wildlife can reside on there without losing yeah, it's very true. history. Ford, I, w I wonder, um, I'm thinking here, now I, I, I could see by the excitement of both of you guys and your voice, did you apply for the bison ticket? And both of you, <laughs> it was like, yes, we put in. Do you think, 
just bearing in mind what Jess has just said about there are places where they would like to actually have bison back and they have the infrastructure in place. It's not a huge number of animals. I, I see this argument a lot. It's like, oh, there's too many of, you know, whatever it might be, springbuck somewhere or uh, too many elephants in northern Botswana. Just just move them to another location. And I, it's a very naive statement from a lot of people because they don't actually understand what's involved in moving a large animals large distances. But 400 bison, we're pretty well equipped at moving bison around and animals in, in that way. And there's a very good infrastructure in North America. Should the reaction not have been, is there something else we can do here rather than, than the yeehaw, let's go kill them from the old hunters, which is what I saw. Which is my response. <laughs> yeah. And I'm, no. not, I'm not necessarily saying that's wrong. Like maybe in this instance, that is the that is the most uh, like economically efficient way to deal with the greater biodiversity issue that they're having in the area. But I, I just do wonder: is there an alternative, or is there even two alternatives? Is there some uh, animals need to be culled, and maybe some can be moved? Well, I think it's in yeah, it's interesting. Sorry, go ahead, Jess. Oh, I was just going to say, well, they did have that conversation. I didn't want to make it sound like they did not have it. I do know that there were, uh, I think, maybe 11 associated tribes that they talked with about this, and there will be opportunities actually for tribal participation in removal operations. Um, I don't know exactly what that looks like. So they 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 try they have tried to like. Um, bring this in. And, and I think the story that got, you know, this petition and everything is, is bringing an interesting thing. Cause, cause the petition is saying they don't want them killed at all. Um, they just want them out, but other tribes and, you know, again, not all indigenous tribes are the same, um, are saying, you know, we'd like our hunters to be a part of it, or, you know, there's a lot of ways for them to be, uh, involved. Um, I know that the national parks worked with the intertribal Buffalo council to actually provide captured live bison to these tribes okay. but they're trying okay. to find that balance and so the fact that it was like this incendiary thing came out which is what i thought was interesting is like you know there's always pushback to something and finding that balance is really incredibly hard but you know we've we've done a poor job of pulling the indigenous voice in early and usually i feel like most of the time we're being like oh shit we forgot to bring them to the table <laughs> and this is the table that they started <laughs> you know yeah yep. but 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 yeah i think uh the, the one thing I would say about the transportation of bison is, is the regulations are, it is not cut and dried in America. It's insane. They have like two year quarantine periods. Uh, oh, and, okay. From disease and cross state boundaries. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a major, major endeavor, uh, to move bison, but you know, 200, I was more just thinking bison. about the, uh, like the practicalities, not necessarily the, re the paperwork and logistics. Obviously I'm not okay with that. It's always the bureaucracy. It's the bureaucracy. <laughs> right? Oh yeah. Well, and how they're how they are considered, so to speak, by the state, right, Jess? And so mm -hmm. much as Montana, I'm going out of limb here, but I believe Montana regulates them as livestock. So Am does Wyoming. Wyoming has as them Wyoming. split. Yeah, where they're they have two designations. They're both wildlife and livestock, depending on where they're at in the state. Right. That's interesting. That's really interesting because there was a, about six months ago. A, and I, I, don't, I can't remember the list off the top of my head, but there was a number of species in South Africa that the South African government, had, which, were, which were, and I would argue still are, wild animals, but they are now classing them as livestock, which 
means that they are treated completely differently in what you can do with them. Uh, and then this actually maybe brings me on to, to my story, which, like I said, is also about bison and bison in, in Europe, which is maybe some people in North America are like, bison in Europe? Did you guys bring <laughs> our, some of our bison over? Well, no, actually, we do have European bison, but a lot like the American bison, they were nearly wiped out. Um, slightly different background <clears throat> to North America. Yeah, there was a lot of overhunting. Uh, it was not market hunting in the same way as that kind of push west. And there wasn't the same kind of politics involved in the reasons for decimating the uh, the populations. In fact, a, a large proportion of the kind of last standing herds were killed at the end of World War II, basically as, as all the troops were retreating, um, particularly the German troops, because it was a big hub around Germany and the countries around there. And they they killed them for, for hides and food. Um, so basically, by the time all of that was over, there was one herd of a dozen, I think, and another of 20. And that was it. That's all we were. That's even less than you guys were left with. I think at least you had a hundred. Um, so you know, we had we had like thirty animals, um, and all the European woods bison that are there today, which I think is, I did have a number here somewhere, um, eight thousand four hundred. That might be a little dated, but I think there's eight and a half thousand in Europe now uh, come from those two populations. Uh, which is insane, and they've done a lot of genetic tests on them to see if there are uh, any genetic implications from this kind of bottleneck, and they seem to have got away with it. Uh, what's interesting, because I didn't actually know the answer to this, because uh, my story is actually about fire um, more than more than anything else, and putting bison back into a landscape. But the, the European bison is essentially a cross between the steppe bison. And um, basically, what our domestic cattle originated from, and these kind of crossed at some point, 120, 150,000 years ago, and we ended up with the European bison. Now, your bison in North America uh, was the steppe bison crossing the land bridge and then becoming the North American bison over time. Um, and so they're they are related um, pretty closely, and they are very similar to to look at. The European bison's a little taller. Um, they can jump higher, weirdly, uh, but they're not as heavy, so they, they don't quite have the same mass as you guys. Um, but the the article, which was published in <laughs> the Guardian, uh, was it was talking about the increase in forest fires, and well, not just forest fires, but fires in general in Europe. But we know around the world, up in the Arctic, and you guys are. I think there was a fire. Well, this was this was arson, though. To be fair, there was a fire in California outside LA yesterday, and we know that there's been really bad fire seasons the last couple of years. It was all over the media in terms of the Amazon a couple of years ago, and they were looking at like managing these fuel loads, which I think Jess, you and I have probably talked about on the podcast before. Mm -hmm. And they were saying that whereas fuel loads need to be managed by people in many instances, the bison in their native range existing at their historic densities would have done that for us because they're prolific browsers and grazers and they would have brought that uh, that density of of fuel load in in dry grass down and we had got away with it previously because of the large amount of livestock grazing that was happening 
But with the way that cultures are changing and the way that food production is changing, and I've seen that here in, in Scotland with the reduction in the number of sheep on, on our hills, in some places, we're not grazing them as heavily with domestic livestock as we used to. And so the fuel loads are increasing. And so then we have to actually have man-made mitigation measures to reduce that. So they were talking about how reintroducing this native species, the, the European woods bison, could potentially play a role in alleviating this really big problem that we have, especially in the face of climate change. And I think it's just a, this, it's interesting to connect these dots about how important species are in this web of an ecosystem and how they function together and how they help provide these uh, sort of counteracting effects from one another to basically create a landscape that's more livable. Um, so yeah, European woods bison uh, potentially reducing the fire abundance in Europe. Um, but like you were talking about, Jess, that's it's controversial in some instances because there's competition. And to your point about like how they're treated, in many countries which would have historically had them, where they've long been extinct, they are not classed as a native species. So mm -hmm. when they're brought back in, they're essentially classed as an invasive non-native. So they can't be Whew. released. They have to be kept behind fences under very strict regulation. Um, so there are a couple of countries that are trying to bring them back. I was just speaking to a friend of mine in Germany today, and she has, uh, I, could, I was telling her about the story that I was going to talk about the podcast today, and she was saying that there's European woods bison not very far from her, but you know, they're all basically controlled behind fences. There's not, they don't really have um, a freedom to roam like you know, our roe deer and red deer do. It's interesting. Which really you know, ties in with our herds, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. the vast majority of American bison are quote unquote domestic, right? Are existing behind wire of some description uh, throughout North America. And it's, it's really only this very small percentage that we're talking about in relation to, to Arizona, to the, to the Grand Canyon there, to the Henry's Mountains, um, and then really the greater Yellowstone. You know, it's these very small blips of quote unquote wild bison, many of which are halfway managed as livestock anyway, right? I mean, when you talk about Yellowstone's herds and, and what happens to them essentially when they come out of the park, um, you know, we, we almost are already treating them as domestic animals. Or another place, I was actually just turkey hunting in the Black Hills of South Dakota, where they actually have a free ranging bison population there at Wind Cave National Park and on Custer uh, State Park. Uh, but on the Custer, it, they both hunt them in a very controlled way, as in, you know, you draw a hunt and it's half a day and you go out with the biologist and you shoot Thomas the bull. You know, it's very, <laughs> it's very uh, organized. And I think probably uh, is perhaps more of a call than a hunt. But uh, they also, interestingly, I believe, round these bison up. So a, a portion of them are not harvested by hunters. They're rounded up and sold to ranchers essentially, or to whoever wants to purchase them for meat or for, um, I guess, recreation or, or, or for whatever reason else you'd, you'd oh, want to buy, well, buy bison. You, so there is kind of a plethora of management strategies underway um, for our bison, you know, as it, per Jess's story. 
Yeah, it's interesting, you know, and, and I think the thing here is like the two different uh, sort of classifications of bison in Wyoming. I'm not sure if Montana does it. I would hazard a guess that they do of having livestock and wildlife is that it actually means that they're managed in two by two different agencies entirely. So when they're classified as wildlife, you know, in Wyoming, the Wyoming Game and Fish Department is, is managing them or the National Park Service, uh, depending on obviously where they're at and what herd it is. Uh, but on the other flip side of that, if they're classified as livestock, they're managed and they're sort of uh, exposed to the rules and regulations around the agriculture board. So not even like, right. you know, game and fish yep. or things like that. So there's a lot of, you know, clearly I think they work together, but there's a lot of even like the fact of that being separate, um, it, it's inherently more bureaucratic to get anything done because there's two agencies now that have to work together um, and, and try and f- figure this out. Uh, the one thing I will say is that, that, there's an interesting thing here in that elk also carry brucellosis. Uh, yeah, that's kind of, larger... that's always for me is kind of the, uh, what about the elk that are all over? Does that never really get elk? brought up? Because I won't well, does... ever really hear it in terms of bison. It, it does all the time. It's the reason that uh, Wyoming has elk feed grounds uh, is to keep the elk out of uh, not only from destroying ranchers' haystacks, but from mingling with cattle, um, which is a whole other controversial topic. Uh, but, you know, brucellosis is talked about in that sense, but not in the way of like the actual like tracking of brucellosis that's been spread amongst ad producers is predominantly from elk i don't even know if they have one confirmed case of bison i think it's entirely i think i read that recently um that there hadn't been a a documented case of brucellosis transmission between bison and domestic cattle and so it's it's a little bit of like a, a a scare tactic to, to, I think that they rely on this brucellosis thing i think the other part is there is some deep sentiment um, and likely racism around sort of the indigenous uh, needs on this. But the other side of it is just that it's, it's a, it is in competition with cattle in some ways. Uh, they compete yeah. for the same grasses, the same places. Uh, they compete in the same livestock industry. And, and so it is, it is uh, competition. Um, and, and brucellosis is an issue. Yes. But I think it's one of many, but it, it, often gets highlighted as the only one. Well, did Montana just pivot somewhat significantly in a, from a bison management perspective? I feel like there was a maybe a 10-year plan under the former governor that maybe did expand or begin more concert, con, uh, conversations around expanding bison and perhaps placing them in, across Montana in more more areas, but I, I feel like that maybe was quashed under Gianforte recently. Yeah. I mean, I know the, there's some like private land, uh, a push to, to buy from, from significant parties to, to amass a large portion of land. Um, I think it's the American, the American Prairie, Prairie Reserve. The APR. Yeah. They have a bison herd also. And and they're looking at, at that kind of uh, thing. I don't know. I mean, honestly, under the governor now in Montana, it wouldn't surprise me if that got completely swept yeah. under the rug. <laughs> but, uh, that is the case. Because I, I actually almost selected 
a story on bison also. Uh, <laughs> Three bison I felt, stories. I felt like there was too much too much bison going on, but this was this was in regard to uh, perhaps an alternate thought or an alternate strategy of expanding bison, which was to to place them on Charles M. Russell National Wildlife Refuge, which yeah. would have been you know it was just federal ground, and so yeah. essentially was a was a different tack on uh, expanding populations of bison in Montana. So yes, here I found a quote for it. Gianforte's decision to cancel the state bison management plan was announced as part of a settlement of a lawsuit with a property rights group. The group raised worries that state officials under former Governor Bullock had schemed to establish a free roaming herd within the refuge along the Missouri River. So that's exactly what happened. Hmm. The scheme. The scheme. <laughs> oh, well, still... Always the nefarious schemes with those wildlife yes. producers. <laughs> On the theme of uh, us changing landscapes for, um, well, for our own purposes, Ford, you have a story about fences? <laughs> yes. Yes. I, I thought I'd go a little optimistic because I felt like, I don't know, to some degree, <laughs> we, we were heading in a, in a negative uh, direction. But I, uh, this was sort of, this is a little unspecified. It's honestly halfway based off my own experiences last week. Um, we are kind of always looking for conservation projects that our employees can volunteer at, get together, have a good time. And we uh, got in contact with a big chunk of private uh, ranch land just outside of town here that's managed by the University of Idaho. It's kind of neat. It's actually, it's owned by a land trust and by the Nature Conservancy, and it's managed as a research station uh, for grazing research by the University of Idaho. Uh, but they are in the process of transitioning a lot of their fencing to what's called laydown fencing um, and, and other forms of wildlife-friendly fencing. And essentially what this looks like now that I've actually seen it is um, three strands of smooth wire that can be electrified that uh, basically can be sort of knocked down, if that makes sense, for for lack of a better description. Um, by for, animals, you mean? No, no, by the rancher. So when okay. there aren't cattle on the range, they basically tip uh, these fences over to the ground and allow ungulates to pass got it. through them without issue, basically. That's smart. They're also when they're standing because they're three wire and, and because they're both sort of lower and the bottom wire is higher. They're quite a bit easier for elk um, and deer and antelope to, to move around over or under, depending on the species um, while they are standing. And the last benefit somewhat significantly around here is that we have a sort of teetering sage grouse population um, across the West and a source of mortality unfortunately almost comically is that these grouse will fly <laughs> fly quite low and they will fly full speed into barbed wire fences and yep. sometimes kill themselves we have the We've same done yeah major yeah. work projects with the wyoming wildlife federation this is funny that you put this in here because i mean we have uh fence builds throughout the state you know and many different volunteer opportunities at least you know Wyoming local because that's where we work, but uh, that push both for flagging on the top strand so sage yep. grouse can see the fence. Yep. <laughs> um, as we well do the same as, thing as for our grouse, fences. put little flags on them. Yeah. Yeah. And it, yeah, it, lay it's down fences. It works apparently. 
hiring that lower strand, especially for antelope who don't yep. jump well at all. Uh, yeah, fences have been a huge issue, uh, especially looking at, you know, Wyoming's got all these huge uh, migration corridors and deer that are traveling these, you know, some 250 miles in some cases from summer range to winter range and back again. Um, and a big push has been to work with the landowners and landowners have been amazing. Um, in fact, I would say that they're probably single-handedly the reason we still have migrations in the West right now is most of these landowners see this as an issue. And, and when groups reach out to partner with them, just jump on the aspect of like updating their fencing, whether it's to lay down fencing for the winter. So these animals can pass through them really easily. Or if it's to just wildlife friendly fencing, that's, you know, three strand with a smooth wire or whatever yeah. works, you know, however it makes sense to, but there's a lot of foundations and organizations that, uh, are willing to do that work and help pay for it. So landowners it's just so need to important. kind of reach out. It's so yeah. important. Yeah. And this kind of like segmentation of our, our countryside and our landscape, we're realizing now, and Jess, you and I have talked about this on the show before. Uh, I think we were particularly talking about roads and how this has cut up our landscape in a way that fragments the, the ability of animals uh, to as populations to function cohesively and fences are the same and the first thing that they we did when we we moved west and started uh moved west across north america as european settlers and started uh, introducing agriculture was put fences up everywhere we did it across the the continent of africa and i mean if you look at uh, europe now we well originally if you go back a lot of it was hedges we would put up a lot of stone walls and a lot of hedges for our fields which were actually brilliant for wildlife then when there was a lot of subsidies available for um or sorry not the subsidies when there, there was this push after world war ii for maximizing our ability to produce food a lot of these hedges got ripped up and they put fences in and then as subsidies came along later some of these hedges were replanted because obviously it's much better for wildlife having a hedge as your demarcation between fields than it is a fence and it's a lot more sympathetic to wildlife. But we really need to consider how we cut up our landscape more, whether that be roads or fences. I've never seen this before, so great story. Thanks for bringing that to yeah, life. Yeah, it was cool. And I did actually have a couple you know, actual articles as per my homework, but... Um, it was it was really neat to to see this in place because it's something you read about quite a lot, um, you know the concept of lay down fence in relation to migration, et cetera. But to to see these in place, they were actually along riparian areas um, to keep cows out of sort of that sensitive bottomland in the sagebrush steppe area where these where this ranch is. Um, but it it was cool to see them in person and sort of see them in action. And honestly, too, pulling fence, old fence, it's got to be up there on sort of the satisfaction scale of volunteer. Yeah, activity, yeah. I agree. Realm. It's pretty yeah. neat. Our employees were so fired up that we're actually doing it again uh, Thursday. So um, is this like the whole first light office just going to go and do this? Yeah, uh, we, uh, <laughs> I think we had about 10 guys. Um and they were actually all guys in this circumstance. Um, yeah, just kind of rolled out after work and drove down. It's only about 30, 30 minutes away from our office. Love um, it. And met up with the manager and, and pulled. It was neat because we, we were kind of working as a team, but sort of leapfrogging down the line. And 
when we finished, we hopped in the back of the ranch manager's truck and drove back to the cow camp along the road, along the fence we had removed for, you know, five minutes or whatever. It was like, wow, that's, that was tangible. That's gone now. Yeah. You know, critters, critters can get through there. It's and I, my, I didn't really Yeah. It's realize, one of my favorite things because it's an immediate, it's immediate gratification. It's not oh, like the yeah. long drawn down out like con- conservation initiative where you're like, Oh, it's going to be 50 years before we 50, pass this. We'll, it's like, be yeah. Before you see the benefit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very immediate. And honestly for a bunch of, you know, what is for all intents and purposes, office jockeys, right? I mean, we're all sort of soft handed computer jockeys at this point in the first light office. And it's nice to get out and actually do something with your hands, you know, that's productive for the world. But it was, it was very cool and and satisfying in so much as I I saw an article cited via the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation whilst kind of looking around the interwebs on this topic before the podcast here. And they actually were citing, you know, we, we kind of, I think all know, like, oh, occasionally a deer elk gets snarled in the fence and dies, right? But they actually cited a study in which a fellow had basically rid, ridden about, I think it was 600 miles of fence methodically in Utah and had worked out ac- an actual figure, an estimate. And it was, I want to say it was one mortality per, per 2.5 miles of fence. Wow. Which add that and, up and they yeah exactly they uh they sort of figured um you know extrapolating obviously that's that's sort of more than occasional if that makes sense oh yeah yeah, yeah. i mean roads I and fences the- human human encroachment roads and fences <laughs> yep well as we get to the end of wrapping up our first show in this series of six series of six at the moment uh, we're gonna we're gonna end every show by playing a sound to one of us or picking a sound of an <laughs> animal or something in nature. I guess I, I was pretty unspecific when I told you guys to pick a sound <laughs> and said what is it. So, uh, Jess, I know you have a sound, so you're gonna play us a sound, and Ford and I are gonna try and guess what it is, and then once we've guessed, you're gonna put us out of our misery. And while we're guessing, people listening to the podcast can guess along and see who's right. So okay. play your sound, Jess. Let's see if we can work it out. Okay. So <laughs> Okay. Unfortunately, I think I heard it and I don't know what it is. <laughs> I don't think I can blame that on feedback. I think I just don't know what it is. I was trying to work out what the band would I be right in saying that sound was recorded at night, Jess? Uh it no? looks like it might be like twilight. Okay. Because it sounds to me like a fox, possibly, but I think it's not a fox because you would have picked something in North America. So is it a canine of some description? No. Well, is it, it a cat of some description? No. Dang. Oh, is, that a, is, it a, is it a bird? No. <laughs> wow. I was going to go for bird and then narrow down the species. <laughs> um, I can give you guys a hint because I can tell you... Uh, I, I came across this animal whilst I was uh, working with a friend for a film uh, in New York, and she is uh, a native Korean, so born in Korea. And we started researching things in Korea, and uh, 
this this one shocked the hell out of me. I, it, it is a oh, so animal this is in Korea from a children's like book. <laughs> it doesn't it look like doesn't look like a real animal. No, it's not. <laughs> Okay. Um, I think you're gonna have to put us out our misery, Jess. Yeah, I agree. I, I want you. I want you guys. I'm gonna say what it is, but I also, while I say this, I want you to Google it because I need your reaction okay. on what this thing looks like. It okay. is a Korean water deer. Oh. Oh. Okay. I, I'm oh. intrigued here. I don't mean oh, like I should have known that. I just am. Oh, this is interesting. Intrigued. So this is. I wonder if this is the same as a Chinese water deer. They are. Yes, they are. Okay, so I have actually seen these guys, and I have hunted one. I have one's head so in the freezer. A, is it a munt jack, basically? No, it's, it's different. Kind, it's it's similar, but not the same. The interesting thing is that the in almost every other place, these water deers are like either domestic in the sense of like hunted, you know, in fenced areas or not, or or in in an endangered position. Whereas in Korea, and this is what I found was really interesting, is the uh, Korean water deer is treated a lot like the American white-tailed deer, where it's a little bit almost of a pest. Like it's it's uh really damaging to crops and they're actually going so far as to like hunt them at night and try and like get them down to a manageable level. And so Shalma Jun, who I was uh, working with in New York and I kind of just Googled like what are huntable species in Korea because we started yeah. talking about it. And this was the first thing that came up and both of us were like, there's no way this is a real animal. Amazing. Um, yeah. And then we played the sto- the sound and I was like, oh my God, I have That's my, my sound. sound. That's <laughs> a good one. So we have them here. They were introduced, I think they were originally introduced to Woburn Abbey. I might be mistaken there, but certainly down south in England. And uh, they've done very well. Um, I mean, they are, they get hunted all the time. They're like rabbits down south in some places. There's loads of them. Um, but they haven't really made it north. I think as they get north, the kind of wet or colder climate doesn't suit them, is from what I can gather. But uh, yeah, I had a chance to hunt them quite a few years ago. Um, not the most, I mean, they need <laughs> to be tiny. managed they're because like they're, they're a problem. Pounds. Yeah, no, they're tiny. They're like, they're almost like a big hare. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I'd, I'd hunt them because they need to be managed down there. They don't, they basically become naturalized, but they are an, an, a non-native species. But it's not a particularly challenging hunt because they just, <laughs> they just hang around in fields and then lie down and sleep in a field. They spend a lot of time in agricultural land. And if you kind of spook them, you know, they run 100 meters and then carry on eating. So it's not really... <laughs> It's not really a hunt <laughs> at all. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're tusks. Yeah, they use them for fighting. What's, for fighting. So they bite at each other with them? Yeah, they kind of like tusk each other. Wow. You should uh, also Google like mating dominance fights because we went way down the YouTube wormhole and <laughs> it's very worth pole. it. <laughs> well, I will leave our uh, podcast listeners to go and uh, uh, to go and YouTube Chinese water deer mating dominance fights. (laughs) And I will will say thank you to both of you for joining me today. (laughs) And uh, we will be back in a week to talk about three more fascinating stories. So thank you guys. This is fun. (laughs) Yeah, thanks so much.